Thanks, kids. You know, when I was a kid growing up in church, I had a friend named Steve, and from the time I started attending the church that I grew up in when I was in about fourth grade through junior high school, Steve and I were almost inseparable. We were pals, we had sleepovers, we hung out on Saturdays and went to the park and played, and uh, through junior high, we, we sat next to one another in Sunday school class. We just had a, a bond, and I thought we would be friends for life. But then high school hit, and Steve was six foot eight, so he was a lock for the basketball team. Of course, they're going to want a kid six foot eight, and so they brought him on the basketball team. And then I started noticing that when Steve was around his church friends, he was playing old Steve. But when he got around his basketball buddies, it was like the rest of us didn't exist. We weren't even there. He didn't know us. Who are these people? You see, the new group that he had joined had this code of ethics. You only hang out with the basketball players. We're the important ones. No one else really matters. And he bought into it. Man, I remember the hurt that I felt, the rejection that I felt because he took on that attitude. As we read the text today, here in Galatians chapter 2, we see very much the same thing going on when it comes to Peter and his interaction with Gentiles. When we look at this account given here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, we see the Apostle Paul calling Peter out on the idea that he would be one way around his Gentile believing friends, but when a group came in from Jerusalem that claimed to be sent by James, he took on a totally different persona, rejecting the people that he had fellowshiped with for some time. And what we want to see is what motivated Peter to have this change of heart. And what we want to do also is avoid behaving that way ourselves. We never want to allow human customs, traditions, and standards to divide the body of Christ. And really, that's what we see in the book of Galatians. A division came because people embraced a custom, a tradition of Judaism... And when they were with Gentile friends, they rejected them because they didn't share the same customs, the same traditions, the same ideas. As believers, what we want to see is this. Legalism, and we're going to define that during the course of this message, is something that will always divide people. But the greater part is grace. Grace unifies. So as you go through this message, remember this. Legalism divides Grace unifies. And we're going to see the importance of following grace rather than legalism. So let's look at the text. As we come to the 11th verse, we find that Paul has an altercation with Peter. And what we find as we come to this is that Paul is addressing him and saying to him that he's wrong. Notice the 11th verse. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face 
because he was clearly wrong. Now, what I want us to see here is this. We can avoid fellowship with believers for unscriptural reasons. And when we do that, we disgrace the very doctrine of grace. And what we see by this example that's given to us in this text as we move in to the 12th verse, that denying our fellowship to others for cultural, racial, legalistic reasons, it's truly a disgrace to grace. God's grace embraces people. God's grace brings us together in unity. Our insistence on attaching ourselves to human customs, to prejudices, to other things that would divide that are not of Scripture, is a total disgrace to the concept of grace itself. And we're going to see that as we look in to this text. Now, look carefully with me at the 12th verse. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. What we find here is the crux of the problem revealed for us in the 12th verse. Peter, who had been a leader in the early church, someone that everyone looked up to, had come to Antioch, and when he first came there, he fellowshiped with Gentiles and Jews alike. As a matter of fact, the picture is that they were coming together for meals and they were sharing in joy and acceptance. And this was a good thing because it demonstrated to the Gentile believers that they could be accepted by their Jewish brethren. And it was an example to even the Jewish believers in that community that, hey, here's a leader of the church and he's coming and he's sharing meals with his Gentile friends. It was an example of what we, the church, what we're supposed to do. And he was setting the pace for the mindset toward the attitude that they were to embrace. So it was a wonderful thing. But there's an unfortunate word here in the 12th verse. It says, before certain men from the Gentiles came, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Do you catch that, used to? He changed his practice. He no longer continued to share meals with them. Now, what's the significance of sharing a meal? This is more than just saying that they sat down together and sort of hung out. In first century Eastern thought, sharing a meal together meant oneness, particularly in the Jewish culture. One Jewish scholar said this, In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For eating a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares the meal brings out the fact that they all share in the blessing, which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. So it was symbolism that we are together, we share the same God, we share in fellowship. It was more than just meeting sustenance and a need for that. It was coming together and expressing unity and oneness. So sharing meals together had a high degree of significance. For the Jews, very often, they had separated over the eating of food. They had strict dietary laws. They had the requirement that the food had to be prepared properly. 
They had the requirement that it had to be tithed properly. All of these requirements had sort of set them apart in their dietary laws from the Gentiles. But here was Peter coming to the Gentiles, setting aside those time-honored traditions and saying, I will fellowship with the Gentiles right here, right where we are. We're going to share fellowship together because our fellowship and our unity is more important than our customs and our traditions. That's what was being communicated. But then there was a change. Notice the 12th verse says that these men had come from James. They had come from the church in Jerusalem. They were in a place that was isolated, still retaining a lot of the Jewish customs. So for them to come to Antioch, they were still going to be thinking in terms of what are our customs. What are the things that we feel comfortable with? So if they were to see Peter sitting down with the Gentiles having a ham sandwich, they would have an issue. They would look at that and they would say, what is he doing? He's breaching everything that we are and that we stand for. And they would have a tremendous issue with what Peter was doing. And Peter sensed that. So when they came, it wasn't like he had an official thing where he got up and walked out and said, I'm never eating with you again. What it was, was a consistent withdrawal from them. As he would think about these people who had come in from James, he kept thinking, oh, you know what, they're looking at me. They're kind of scowling a little bit that I'm sharing this meal with the Gentiles. That's not good. I don't want them going back to my friends in Jerusalem and saying that I sold out. So what did he do? Look at the text and it tells us that he started to separate himself from the Gentiles. The way this is phrased in the original language, it's an ongoing separation. It's something that was continuous. It was something that he began and then it grew and it escalated. And all of it was because he was trying to honor the traditions and the customs of the people that he was concerned about, those who had come from James. Now, as we look at this, we can say, well, shame on Peter. I mean, how could he do that? Why would he stop eating with the Gentiles? But you know, peer group pressure can be a tough thing, can it? There are times where we sell out. We're so afraid that someone will think poorly of us that we don't look to God's Word and say, is what I'm doing of God's Word? We look and we say, how are other people going to think? What's going to be their take? Now, sometimes this leads us to do things that aren't biblical. When our friends are all doing wrong things and we join in with them, that's not good. But sometimes it causes us to be prime candidates for legalism. In other words, 
We start to accept customs and traditions that are presented as biblical and of God, but really there's no scriptural support. And we isolate ourselves and we pull ourselves away from other Christians because they don't share that same list that we share, and we reject them for it. That's where it becomes particularly unfortunate. God does not want us to divide. Now, I said I would define legalism. What is it? Legalism is basically an acceptance of a set of rules or standards that are not based in Scripture. They're based on tradition. They're based on a current thought or outlook. They're based solely by human beings coming up with that list of rights and wrongs and elevating them to the level of Scripture. God doesn't want us to operate in that manner. There's nothing wrong with having standards, but when we elevate them and begin to separate and divide over rules and standards that aren't set in Scripture, that's problematic. We begin to judge other Christians, rejecting them because they don't share that same idea, that same custom, that same tradition. Missionaries are faced with this all the time. They go to another country, and I see Howard shaking his head yes. (laughs) They go to another country, and they have to ask themselves, do I feel bad about this because it's a custom of American Christians? Or do I feel bad about this because it's of God and the Word of God and I don't want to transgress what Scripture says? And you know what they discover? As they interact with believers around the world, a lot of our hang-ups come because of American Christianity where we embrace a Christianity that is unique to us, not necessarily the Word of God, and we divide over it. This is the issue that Paul was addressing in this passage. And what he was saying is this it hurt the body of Christ, what Peter did. His dividing over these customs and traditions put a split right down the church between Jews and Gentiles that didn't need to be there and shouldn't have been there. As a matter of fact, it wasn't there before when he used to eat with Jews and Gentiles alike. It came because he elevated human tradition and custom above the Word of God. And when he did that, there was a terrible problem the church began to divide. And that's what we see as we continue to the 13th verse. In the 13th verse, we go on to see that damaging the church body through division disgraces grace as well. Look at the 13th verse. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now I want you to look at the damage that Peter's behavior brought to the church. First of all, we see that other Jews joined Peter. They were looking at this and they were saying, well look, if if the leader of the Jerusalem church is dividing, then I guess we should follow him too. 
We should accept what he's saying because he's the leader. And so we'll join with him in separating ourselves from the Gentiles as well. We used to enjoy meals with them, but no more. Now we're separating. A problem ensued because we don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in isolation. When people see us do certain behaviors, especially if you're a leader, they're going to follow. So a problem began to enter this once close, tight-knit fellowship. Where once there was oneness, now there's division. You have Peter and some of his Jewish friends who were siding with the people from James. And then you had others who were with Paul and the Gentiles. But then it goes on. Notice it says that even Barnabas was drawn in to the hypocrisy. Now, who was Barnabas? Barnabas was the person who helped plant churches with Paul. He was familiar with the Gentiles and their struggle. And the Gentiles were familiar with Barnabas because when we read in Acts, they went all over the place sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And Barnabas had a love for the Gentiles. And yet, as he watches Peter and he watches his other Jewish friends, Barnabas was Jewish as well, he began to isolate himself and pull himself away also. And I want you to look at what Paul calls all of this. He calls it hypocrisy. Now, what is hypocrisy? We know that the hypocrites were Greek actors. They would take a mask and they would hold it over their face and we would see them present themselves to be something that they were not. If it was a comedy, there would be a big smile on the face. If it was a tragedy, they'd have a big frown on the face. And they would hold this false face in front of theirs. And those were the hypocrites. But the term came to mean something else. To be inconsistent. To present ourselves to be something that we are not. And that's what Peter was doing in this text. He was siding with what would be popular with what would curry favor far above what was right. And isn't that a struggle that we all have? To some degree or another, there isn't a person in this room who hasn't failed in this at some point, myself included. You have the Holy Spirit telling you, hey, you need to do this, you need to not do this. But then we start to think, how's everyone else going to respond? How's everyone else going to look at me? And what do we do? We cave. We say, I'll go along to get along. I know it's not right. I know that's not who I am. And then we really become hypocrites when we behave one way around some people and another way around others. The Bible calls this wrong. It calls it a sin. And this is what Peter had become guilty of. And as a result, a division came into the church. Listen, God allows for diversity within the church. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. If we're all the same, there's not the beauty of the church. Think of it like this. You can have a singing group that comes up and everybody sings melody and it sounds pretty good. But man, when you have people that come up and they sing the parts 
the soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and you bring them all together, what do you hear? Something of intense beauty. Now, if all of the bassists came together and said, let's all sing bass, you're going to have some people excluded because they can't sing that low. But even if they could and they tried, what's it going to sound like? Just pick out a bass part and it sounds like nothing. It doesn't sound like the melody at all. It complements the other parts of the music, and that's what brings about harmony, and that's what brings about beauty. And that's the way it is with the church. God wants us to be unique. We don't have to embrace all of the same traditions and customs. We have to embrace the Savior, the Word of God. We have to follow those. But some of the things that we set up and we say, this is what's really important when it's not addressed in the Word of God. Those are the things that divide us. And that's why Peter was rebuked in this text. I want you to look at what we see as we continue in this text. Going back to the 11th verse, we see that we have a responsibility. Addressing error that doesn't line up with grace of the gospel is right. When somebody is saying something, teaching something that doesn't line up with the grace of the gospel that's presented in God's word, they need to be confronted. We need to see division as a serious sin. Look at the 11th verse once again. In the 11th verse, Paul says this, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, Paul didn't dance around the issue. He didn't look at Peter and run to everybody else and say, you know what Peter's doing is really wrong. What did he do? He went face to face with Peter. And he said to Peter, you're wrong. And you need to stop this. You need to quit dividing people. You need to come together. Why? Division is something that is destructive to the church. It's a tool of Satan. God never splits a church that is following grace and following His truth. People split the churches because they go off in sinful directions, selfish directions, and they place personal preference, tradition, custom above God's truth, unity, and grace. And so what we see here in the Word of God is God addressing that through Paul to Peter, saying, cut it out. Don't do that. Stop it right now. Then look at the 14th verse. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Here we come to the true crux of the matter. We find that discounting the truth of God's grace is often communicated through our treatment of others. And certainly this is what Peter was doing in this text. The way he was treating the Gentile believers 
was in direct contrast to the doctrine of God's grace. Grace brings about love. Grace brings about acceptance of one another. And Peter was flying in the face of it. So what was the solution? Verse 14, once again, look at the first part of it. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, and then he issues him a challenge of his hypocrisy. You see, here's the issue. Through the gospel, grace is given to us by God. Faith is the arm that reaches out and takes the grace of God, brings us into a relationship with the Father, but it also brings us into a relationship with one another, with other believers. That's why Paul later in the book of Galatians says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. That is the point of grace. Grace brings us into unity. When we divide, we are frustrating one of the purposes of grace to bring us together as one. So this was Paul's challenge to Peter. You are undermining the very gospel that we stand for by saying that customs and traditions trump the very gospel of Jesus Christ. That we come to God by God freely offering salvation and us receiving it by faith, not by the works that we do. He was saying you're confusing the gospel. And he challenged him on it. Now, notice Paul is very quick to point out that he said this to Peter in front of them all. Why didn't he pull Peter aside and say, Peter, you're killing us here. You know, what you're doing needs to stop. Why are you doing this? Cut it out. Why did he do it in front of everyone? Here's the issue. What he had done was a public sin. It was done publicly, so it needed to be challenged publicly. There were already people starting to follow what Peter was saying, so if he had done it on the side, he wouldn't be stopping the sin that was taking a foothold in the church at Antioch. 1 Timothy 5.19 gives this instruction. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin, now look at this, are to be rebuked publicly. Why? So that others may take warning. Churches shouldn't take public sins by leaders and sweep them under the rug. They need to be addressed publicly if they are public sins. That's the point of this passage and later what Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And here's the thing. We need to remember that we're not islands. As a believer, when I make a statement, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, people look at my life. And they want to see a life transformed by grace. And when I'm inconsistent with that, 
it not only affects an isolated me, it affects everyone around me who is judging the gospel of God's grace by the way I live it out. That's why we have to be real. That's why we have to demonstrate to people what the grace of God is. They listen to our words, but they also look at our lives. And we'd better be showing the transformation of God's grace. So if I'm allowing prejudices and hatreds to enter into my life, not demonstrating the very gospel of Christ, then even though my words might be right, they're null and void by my actions. There has to be that acceptance that comes with grace. Jesus said this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you love one another. Now what does love have to do with grace? What motivated God to extend His grace to us? His great love. What should be our motivation in extending grace to others? Love for God and love for my fellow man. That's where we find grace exemplified in a real way. Last point. Aligning ourselves with the truth of God's grace has to be our first concern. We can't look and say, well, how are people who hold to these traditions going to look at me? How are they going to accept me? That's not to be our first concern. What we need to do is decide what is true and then compare everything else with the truth. Not custom, not man's standards, the very truth of God. Look at verse 15. In verse 15 it says this, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Paul was talking to Peter and saying, You have divided over ethnic and custom type issues. And that's wrong. Don't do it. You know better. None of us come into a relationship with God by what we do. And you're sending the wrong message, Peter. That's what he was telling him. You're sending the absolute wrong message. The truth of the gospel is we all come the same way. You know what's really going to be cool in heaven? Not one person can come up to us and say, this is what I did to get here. Can you imagine how miserable heaven would be if everybody said, well, I did this to get here, you know, and the next person gives his explanation of how he got there. What a drag that would be to have to listen to that for all eternity. <laughs> and some of them would go on and on for all eternity, wouldn't they? <laughs> We don't have to worry about that. How did you get here? Through the grace of God and my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm here. And we're all the same. And that needs to sink in because not only is that true in heaven, it's true here. 
When I walk into church on a Sunday morning, I'm here with sinners saved by grace because I'm one too. We're all the same. And that's a beautiful truth. That needs to not just be an academic thought, but it needs to be lived out in the way we treat one another. I treat you as a fellow heir of Jesus Christ because that's who you are. There's not people who have a birthright to Christianity because they were raised in a Christian home and those who weren't and came to Christ later are somehow late to the game so we don't want anything to do with them. There's not that division. There's not a division between us because we might have some nuance that we hold differently than someone else as to how a particular idea is to be applied to the Christian life. We're sinners saved by grace, and we come together in that grace. And that's what God wants us to live, and that's how God wants us to treat one another. Paul was being reminded that no one was justified by observing the law. Now, what does that word justified mean? It means made right with God. And the idea is this. Not one person is made right by God, with God by what they do. We all come the same way, faith in Jesus Christ. So to isolate one group, reject one group, denies that truth. When they've all come the same way we have, we need to understand that. The Bible tells us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Here's the final thought. Dedicating ourselves to unity comes from understanding that we all come to God by grace. Look at the last part of the 16th verse. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. He was saying... Stop spreading the confusion. Stop dividing over things that are not of God but are of man. And that same message rings true for us today. Grace should be the identifying behavior of the church that's motivated by love. You know, when you ask the average person today, what is your perception of Christianity? You know what the number one answer is? Judgmental. Number one answer. By far the number one answer. Somehow we're not communicating the grace of God. Somehow we're not saying to the lost that we are a place of grace and love. So we need to consider that. But number two... How am I showing grace to the fellow recipients of grace? We divide over far too much. We'll have a preference. We'll have an idea that sticks in our head. And if people don't share that same preference or idea, then they're no good. I'm done with you. 
And so we form, form these little cloisters of people that come together and share the same ideas and views, and then we look at the other cloisters that don't share those same ideas and views, and we reject them and resent them. We unify around the gospel, the truth of God's word. That's what we need to understand from this text. We need to do a better job of living out grace, of showing the lost world how it transforms our lives and how it can transform theirs as well. Job number one, we need to share that. Father, we pray that we would demonstrate grace in a way that is pleasing to you, Lord. Not isolating or dividing over preferences or precepts that aren't found in your word, but that, Father, we would open our hearts to others and love them as you love them and demonstrate grace so that people can see in the flesh how grace is lived out. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.